Hello, world. Welcome to the Speed Strength Show. I'm Braden. I'm Tommy. And Braden, would you rather, in this very moment, go completely bald or have all your hair turn white? Oh, interesting. In this moment. And then like just... right now from like. And it goes forever. And yeah, this would be the onset of it. Uh, white for sure. Any yeah. reasons behind that? Uh, I just like to have the freedom of having hair. Like I can choose to shave my head, you know, but if you're bald, then you don't even have the option of having hair. You know what I mean? If, if the white hair looks bad, then I can, uh, I can shave it, but. We had the conversation before about how my brother shaved his head last summer. And oh, that's right. Yeah. That looked bad. So <laughs> you ripped on him for it. Yeah. Plus, I don't know. I think, I think if you're bald, but you have a beard, it kind of balances out and everything looks pretty nice. But I'm not so good at growing a beard. So I, I don't think it would look that nice. So that plays into it. Yeah. Yeah. How about you? I would go nice. the opposite way. Well, you're basically bald all the time anyway. Well, that would, yeah. So my thought behind it was what's the least noticeable difference. Mm, and good. so as a dark haired individual who always like my hair is very long right now, I haven't cut it in probably like six or seven days. So my hair is <laughs> That's extremely not long. long right now. That's not long at all, man. No, it is. It's, it's a mess right now. I, I, noticed, like- I notice a difference when I wake up in the morning. I'm like, it's too long. I need to cut this again. So as someone who always has their hair, like buzzed with like the number one clip on the the razor and who has dark hair. I feel like if all of a sudden, if I showed up on the the call one time and my hair was just snow white, I feel like you would notice right away. Yeah. Dark hair as where if I decided one day to use no clip on the razor instead of the one, you, you may not even notice, or you might just go, ah, he cut his hair even shorter this time. So I was going by the, what's the least noticeable difference. So that's why I would pick just hmm. bald. That's fair. Um, I do think, I mean, I know I would notice both for sure. Um, the white would probably be a bigger contrast, but I mean, I can't imagine the tone of your scalp is that much like darker than white, you know? No, that's true. But I guess it's just, and then my hair, like, as it, like, it's, as it goes longer, like if I decide to grow it out a little bit longer, you really notice how dark it is. Yeah. So then if I grew my hair out at all and I had like bright white hair, you would notice right away that it was just a huge 180 mm. from what I had before. So that would have been my rationale. That's interesting. That's an interesting way to think about it. Like whatever's the least noticeable change. Cause I think the white hair is probably least noticeable for me too. Well, and that's why I wasn't sure if like, as soon as you said that, I was like, Oh, I wonder if he's, picking you know the white hair for the same reason i'm picking no hair yeah no i don't know it's for me like it wasn't because of that but that's an interesting parallel but i don't know i think having hair gives you more freedoms which like it does um and i don't think white hair looks bad honestly um if it matches your complexion to an extent so i mean honestly none of it is necessarily good or bad yeah Like certain people can pull off certain looks. Yes. Right. And there's some people I think of, um, who's the comedian's name? Uh, Steve Martin. Who's had like white hair for probably almost all his career. Yeah. It suits him. And he can, yeah. Or you just get used to it. Like that's, oh, that's, that's what their hair looks like so i feel like there's like you said with your brother like as soon as he buzzed his hair and you're like no you know what let's not do that ever again (laughs) yeah like there's there's certain styles that can fit certain people so yeah but i mean right now he has a beard so it might actually if he decided to do it again it might might look better um yeah maybe it's time to yeah time to play around do you think i didn't consider the beard part i grow a pretty trash beard yeah but i've never seen you with a beard either i've never like honestly really tried Mm. i yeah i shave frequently and cut my hair every three or four days so yeah i was gonna say like the amount of time that you haven't cut your hair in days is still not as much as like i've for you it's been six or seven days for me it's been like nine months nine or ten months (laughs) yes (laughs) 
So, yeah, it's. I think I normally get my hair cut like every two or three months anyway. Yes, that all oh, that would. I wouldn't be able to do that. Why well, I, I get it cut when it's to the point where I can't deal with this anymore. I get like a week in. I'm like, I need to cut my hair. <laughs> I need to get the razor out and I need to get rid of all of this. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. Would you say that your hair length is potentially a very volatile quality or adaptation maybe? Uh, what do you mean by like, can you clarify a little bit? Like, well, if you, you could think about like a haircut as like training for your hair length. Okay. And if you don't do it for six days, then your hair length gets out of control and it like severely needs to be trained again. Oh yeah. Like the hair length would be like, if you look at the, uh, what's his last name? Uh, Isherin, the Russian guy who had the, the chart of like adaptation and how long you can hang on to a certain adaptation and some things you need to train more frequently and some things you need to train less frequently. Haircut would be like, Every two or three days, you've got to get the razor out and cut your hair. You can't let that go 30 days. It's right on par with max speed. That's right. Yeah, just <laughs> you've got to make sure you get that in. Oh, man, that's funny. That's funny. And it, I mean, it blends right into what we're talking about today to an extent. I'd say so. I think, I think too. Um, with the plyos part three. And we talked about, uh, well, adaptations and how to train last time. Um, or some of how to train anyway, but we wanted to get into a little bit more about uh, like how to train and how to classify like other ways to classify these exercises and um, potential progressions and things like that too. Um, or at least I know you had some thoughts about that. Yeah. Some like progressions, ideas on how to use it. Uh, you know, there's, like you said, a little bit more of the application we've talked about what are they and, and what do they do? But most importantly, what do we do with it or how do we use it with, with the athletes or people that we're, we're working with. So it's kind of what everybody, what everybody wants to know anyway, how do I use this? Yeah, that's right. Um, so what were some of the, like, did you want to start with the like classifications or progressions or what did you, what did you think? Yeah. I mean, to me, the classification, the progressions kind of the, it's in the same, realm right it's like how are you organizing all the different options on the table in terms of plyometrics because there is there there is a lot out there in the sense that the original work was all done based off of two foot jumping essentially but if we start breaking down the plyometric training to its root where it's a rebound activity that happens in a really small window of time that could be upper body, could be lower body, could be two limbs, could be one limb. Uh, you know, there's a lot of different places that it can start to, you know, it's the, there's a lot of different places you can go with it based on your level of creativity, right? So you yeah. don't necessarily have to be confined to what was done in the original research to sort of discover how this mechanism worked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that you said upper body and lower body or one limb or both limbs because, I mean, I think especially upper body, we don't think about uh, plyos in the same context anyway. Like you think about throws and stuff like that, but um, with how we're defining plyos with like a rebound, um, I think a lot of people don't do those or don't realize it's something that you can do um, or wouldn't know how to set it up um, because the like you can't it's hard to rebound off of the ground with your arms with your hands so you'd kind of have to do more of like dropping like catching a weight and throwing a weight which is hard to set up and potentially dangerous yeah and i mean the other thing too is i think plyometric training can be helpful for different types of throws right like throwing a baseball throwing a football javelin things like that but i don't necessarily know if they fall under like plyometric because there isn't really a, the window of time is different. Um, and there's not really like a rebound there. There's a load and go component of throwing, 
in the same way there's sort of a load and go component of getting off the ground with your foot. But there's not this like reactive element where you have to brace against an immovable object. Like the only example I can think of off the top of my head that would be like a plyometric activity for the upper body is if you think about like a gymnastics routine where they're like flipping and they, they hit the ground instantly upside down with their hands and then vault themselves back up or forward or whatever. And even then, in most cases in gymnastics, it's a spring-loaded floor, right? Uh, I don't know. I guess I imagine so. It's so I, pretty high. But that's the only like truly plyometric example I can think of where somebody touches their hand on the ground and then boom, they're getting off the ground quickly. But yeah. I still think it's an important component of training for somebody who has to do dynamic things with their upper body, such as throwing. Yeah, you're not going to get the same spring uh, component, which I think is fine. Like the way that your foot and ankle complex, like with the Achilles tendon works with like running, jumping, change of direction is completely different than how your hand wrist complex needs to work for throwing or for like punching or anything like that. Like it's usually much more about finesse and stability and like the, like most of the speed and power and stuff is coming from like, hips, torso, up through the chain anyway. Um, I mean, we get all our power from the ground, so you got to you gotta bring it up through. So I, I don't think it's as it's a good phrase. important, but uh, thank you. Um, but like a, like a bench press or reactive bench press throw or something like that is kind of like, again, like I understand what you're saying. It's a longer contact time, like the time that you're holding the bar and then throwing it again, is longer than the amount of time you would spend on the ground for a depth jump or something like that. Um, well, I mean, there's but, ways you could alter it. Like if you're doing the med ball press, you could be mm -hmm. in that plyometric window of time. Well, I guess I just mean the, I, I think it's more because of the range of motion, which I guess you could make the range of motion really short too. Um, because the, like, the range that the ankle needs to go through to like compress and then rebound off of the ground is really, really small. So it can happen really quickly versus like, if you want the throwing plyo to be more like elbow dominant, then you could have like a really quick, just bend the elbows a little bit, press back up and it would be very, very fast. But if you wanted it to be more of a, like a stretch in the chest kind of thing, which I think for throws would make more sense because the, the pecs are going to have more of an impact on a throw. Um, then it's going to be a very long or a, a much longer, you know, contact time. Yeah. That, I mean, that's fair. And that's also, I mean, it, again, I think that's the reason now why we're talking about how do you classify this stuff? How do you, how do you organize it within your training? Because as you've highlighted, just one small change that seems really subtle on the outside could actually have a pretty big impact in terms of what the outcome is going to be from your, your training in general. So I think that's why it's important to, to think about that. And I don't necessarily uh, think that like the original work. So if you look at the stuff from Verkashansky, where it was just classified as intensive and extensive and in, intensive tempos were the, the higher intensity stuff. So that's when you were getting off the ground really quickly. It's when you were dropping from really high boxes. And then the extensive stuff was a lot lighter and that was, you know, skipping or longer contact times. And so it was all based on effectively the contact time on the ground. And the faster you were getting off the ground and the, the bigger, the, the impact was you were bringing into the movement, the more intense it was, but as we've talked about a little bit, upper body versus lower body, if you're on one leg versus two legs, that starts to change the, the load on the individual more so than just what's the contact time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot more that you can do uh, to change, well, even just to change the intensity or the difficulty, like um, speeding it up is going to be one thing that changes the intensity or difficulty to some degree, but that's going to also come 
at the expense of force, which force is another thing, or like load, which load can be speed into the impact or like weight into the impact, in my opinion, anyway. Um, you know, base of support is another thing that kind of like you're maybe taking the same load, but distributing it over fewer joints and fewer muscles. Um, like doing a, a one leg jump compared to a two leg jump, I mean. Um, <clears throat> and things like, and then you can add like other coordinate, coordinative uh, changes as well to different jumps. Yeah, well, from a coordination standpoint, even the travel, right? So are you dropping off of a box vertically and then jumping vertically is going to be less stressful on the person than if you were like bounding or jumping forward or like traveling with your, with your movements, right? So all of these things are going to play into uh, what's it called into the, the difficulty level. And like, I'll be honest, I don't have a great system. I don't think for organizing my plyometric training. Um, but I think it's one of those things where you kind of have to look at it. Uh, I don't know if it's really possible to come up with a, a perfect progression or intensity model of plyometrics, but rather do you kind of know all the categories, right? So like w what height, load, or speed am I bringing into it? Like you mentioned before, right? And there's going to be higher or lower intensities. Well, am I moving in the same direction or am I moving in a different direction or changing direction? Cause that's obviously going to skew it one way or the other. Am I on two legs or am I on one leg? Cause if I'm on one leg, it's going to be more intense. And so I tend to think a little bit more about the category and even the skill involved and then go, okay, something like alternating single leg bounds are pretty intense because you're traveling both up and forward and you're on one leg and there's a pretty high coordination level if you do it correctly versus something like, you know, just a, a classic drop or depth jump. So again, I don't have a super clean system, but I, I try to look at each of the factors and then go, well, am I on the more or less intense scale of, of those things? And there's some cases where a single leg movement might be less intense than double leg movement or vice versa, depending on all the factors put together. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's really going to tell or depend on like who the individual is that's doing these things. Um, I find that like, I think something like a, uh, a single leg alternating bound going forward has more of a, it, it can be very intense for sure, but I think it has more of a coordinative thing. Like somebody who has a high degree of coordination can do it well. The output's just not going to be that high um, versus that same person might not be able to do like a high depth jump well, because there's just the like physical traits that they don't have, like the neural output or the um, like tendon strength or muscle strength or whatever to, to actually do those things well versus somebody <clears throat> might have the muscular neural drive, all that stuff to do a depth jump well, but not have the like cognitive ability to organize their, their limbs in a way to alternate that way. Um, and I find that like that gets even more <clears throat> um, indicative, like the, the more complex and like you talk about with a, a forward bound, like you're traveling up and forward, but it's, like the trajectory of each bound is the same. Well, yeah, it's a combined trajectory. Yeah. You're not um, going up and then forward or forward and then up or like it's right. combined at the same time. But if you start to make things a little bit more complex where you're like going forward, lateral, forward, lateral, forward, lateral, or like forward, up, forward, up, which I've done with some of these kids. And uh, it seems to me that it's often the coordination that limits things more often. And like, and because they don't understand how to coordinate their body, they like the output is severely reduced because of it. Well, and even the coordination piece, think of a single leg movement. I'm glad you brought that up because like an alternating single leg bound mm -hmm. versus a single leg hop mm -hmm. where you're getting on and off the ground 
with the same foot over and over again is way more intense than alternating feet back and forth. Yes. Yep. Right. So, and again, these are the types of things that, that I'll take into consideration if I'm programming plyometric stuff. I don't really follow the traditional model of, oh, you need to be able to squat two times body weight. And then once you can squat two times your body weight, then you're strong enough to do plyometrics. And then we move from extensive plyometrics to intensive plyometrics. I, you know, sort of work more from a, like a landing mechanics, landing progression. Do you have the strength to yield and hold the positions you need to be in? And then you're kind of right into this, this like web that we're talking about where, yeah, you start playing around with all these different factors and there's probably some safe places to start on single leg, probably safe places to start on double leg, depending on what you wanted to do. And then you, you can kind of branch out from there based on the qualities the athlete has, or like you said, what you think is important. If single leg is really important, then you start working with some simple single leg things just in place or landing or something like that. And then you can progress to, to more advanced stuff, but I don't think it's as linear a process as maybe we're traditionally taught or what's traditionally in the research where this stuff came from. Yeah. I like the web analogy a lot for sure. I think um, you need to know that like, I don't think the landing mechanics need to be like, they need to be taught and they need to be done like to some reasonable success, but um, they don't need to be like stressed you know what I mean? Like, I think if someone understands how to land, then, then they're good and you can move on. Um, but I think it's helpful to like, look at the athlete and like, where are you in terms of like, you don't have to actually quality or quantify what it is, but where are you in terms of like your strength level, your like reactivity level, your like coordinative level and like all these different things. And then you can kind of have an idea where each exercise is uh, on all of those levels. And if, you know, if the athletes a five in strength, then they can handle anything that's a five or below in strength in terms of plyos kind of thing. And then um, I think you can also use those strengths to help guide an athlete in the direction that you want them to go. Um, so if it's an athlete that wants to be sprinting, like they're, trying to train for a hundred meter sprint. So they need to be better at the fast contact times, but they're not good at that yet. You can start with the very like slower plyometric activities and like get the output, get the coordination and all those things ramping up um, and then like progress them into faster contact times things. And likewise, I think if you have someone who is like already very springy, you can like have those, uh, faster contact time activities and uh, and then like add more intensity or complication to them to like they can still be springy but you're um, you're putting what's the word you like to use constraints constraints on them to like uh, slow them down a little bit and, and force them to use a little bit more like rate of force development type uh, strategies and push them in that direction. Yeah. And that might, now that we're talking about this, this might be a project that I have to like for myself anyway, like I can see it being a chart, some kind of like a, or a series of charts for you. I would try to keep it the one chart. Okay. Um, and maybe have it more be the, like the overall concept. So something like there might be a box that's labeled like double leg or single leg. I don't necessarily have to list all the endless ways you could do a certain double leg or single leg movement, but some sort of a, a more concrete way of classifying or organizing, you know, what I'm doing from a plyometric standpoint, because I tend to, like I said, I don't have a great like resource to fall back to because it is, it, it's a mess. It's a web. It, it's like I said, it's not this nice linear thing that we would like it to be. So that might be a project I have to, I have to work on. I think that'd be interesting. Add to the resources that I, that I use. Cause it would make it way faster. You just go to the chart, you go to your thing and you're like, 
oh, okay, this is what I'm going to do with this person. And I yeah, know where I'm going and I know if it doesn't work where I need to go back to. Because yeah. I have some sort of plan rather than kind of like, I don't want to say scrambling like on the fly because then it sounds like I had no idea what I was doing. But mm-hmm. you, you know exactly where you can go back to or go forward to like from a conceptual standpoint. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's helpful to have it organized that way so that it's not, it's yeah, it's more organized than you when you have the time to compile all of your ideas, then you can organize them instead of just in whatever moment you need to figure out what you're doing. It's uh, I mean, it's not instinctual for me. I haven't been like thinking about this stuff for very long, but um, it's more based off of feel, I guess. And like, where, where are these people at and like, what's something that's a reasonable challenge for them um, and things like that. Um, yeah, that wasn't my idea, but I think I'm walking away from this going, this is an idea. Not not an idea, but it left me with homework. That's mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll be interesting, interested to see what you uh, come back with. Um, that leads me into one question anyway, that is a bit of a puzzle for me um, in terms of like, if you want to improve someone's jump performance i guess like with with speed stuff it's i think not i'm not going to say easy but it's a little bit more straightforward because you need to be very fast off the ground um so pushing in that direction i think is always going to or almost always going to be helpful unless their start is really bad um but with jump performance for like a basketball athlete or a volleyball athlete um or a high jumper something like that how would you determine what their like rate limiter in terms of progress is? Um, and we can kind of classify it like in the, the same three Verkashansky things where there's like the neural output or like neural drive kind of thing. Um, you could like rate of force development could be one stretch shortening cycle could be one. And then elasticity could be one. Um, so you've got, I mean, there's probably more, but you've got like four, physical properties anyway that you can go after and like how do you determine which one of those i guess is limiting well i i think it's going to depend on the actual activity so if i think about something like take high jump for example even though it's the longest or one of the longer contact times in terms of force application in the sport of track and field it's still well within that like very rapid, like two tenths of a second, boom, off the ground. So I would think the, the, the elastic ability you need is probably your, your limiting factor. Um, you know, and even too stereotypically, if you look at high jumpers, they're really tall. They're really like, they're long, right? So they have long tendons because they have long, like limbs and bone structures and things like that. So that ability for them to like load the tendons elastically and have that spring like activity is probably going to be the limiting factor for them is where it becomes a little bit trickier with something like volleyball, basketball, um, because there's both a reactive element more so in basketball, it's almost entirely reactive when you would jump and uh, do things like that. The only time you would know exactly what you're going to do is if you had the ball and you were dictating play and where it's going to go. Cause you can decide I'm going left, I'm going right. But for the most part, I'm jumping up to go get a rebound. I'm doing whatever it's in response to something else. Volleyball's maybe a little bit more in the middle where offensively I have time to set up, but defensively, I don't. So that's where I think with volleyball, basketball, I don't even know if there'd be one that's necessarily limiting, but you would need to be competent in almost all of those. And I don't know the sports necessarily, or I don't know the sport of volleyball well enough. There might be some players that are more offensively based. And maybe you need to train them more from that stretch reflex or 
nervous system standpoint because they're they're most effective on set plays where they know okay this is where the ball's going i have this much time i can load up boom get ready and then strike strike the ball compared to somebody who maybe plays a primarily defensive role maybe needs to be a little bit more on the faster end because they're going to have less time to react and make moves to what the opponents are are doing and probably basketball is a little bit more in the middle because it's almost entirely reactive for the most part. Cause even the set plays aren't as set as in volleyball. Cause there's no opponents on your side of the court. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, and that's, I guess that's what I mean. Like if you do, if you know that you need all of them, then like there would be, like two volleyball players or two basketball players that have the same sort of like standing jump and same sort of approach jump. Um, or maybe, maybe that's not the case, but maybe they have the same approach jump, which is probably the one that you care about more. Um, and one of them is very elastic and like good at the elastic component, but not as good um, at the rate of force development component. And then you could have the inverse you know, someone else is better at the rate of force development or better stretch shortening cycle um, and not as elastic, things like that. Um, and I guess it's hard for me at this point to figure out which one is which because I don't know, like you you can have, um, like you can have kids that like they're weak and not very elastic. So I guess if I'm thinking about it, they probably benefit from everything. Um, so it maybe it doesn't matter anything that much. with them and they'll get better. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Maybe it doesn't matter that much. Then. <laughs> Do you think it's easier to tell like with, with older athletes, probably who's like more elastic and needs to get stronger and who is strong and needs to get more elastic? Yeah, probably because you start to see, you know, the, like, yeah, someone, like you said, someone who's not very strong can still, in some cases, jump out of the gym. And then you go, well, okay, it must be because they just have, like, they have the elasticity because they don't necessarily have the muscle size or force. Um, and I think, like, if you were, and if you were going to force me to pick one, regardless of the sport, I think it is the elastic and reactivity ability that's, that's the most important because that's, what I would argue is the least trainable. Mm. Right. And in some cases you might not be able to do much with that. Like some people are built for it. They have the tendon structure, they have the architecture to be good at that. And some people don't as where compared to something like strength, which is a really trainable quality in from a general standpoint, right. doesn't mean everybody can be an elite weight lifter or power lifter, but most people can improve their strength to a pretty or improve their strength a reasonable amount, which would then improve the rate of force development and some of the things on the, like the slower end of, of the scale. So your ability to improve that is probably pretty, pretty high. So that's why if I had to pick something across the board, that was like the limiting factor, I would probably pick the, the elastic or the reactivity ability because that's arguably the hardest of all those qualities to actually train and in some ways is going to separate the elite from the sub elite from the great from the good from the they don't even belong in the sport yeah i mean that makes sense um i guess with that being the fastest of the qualities and like speed being so important and like 99% of sports that makes a lot of sense um and when people get into training like that's probably the thing that they won't be spending time on um yeah yeah that makes sense um that kind of gets me into another another thought that i have mentioned but not actually explained to you yet um yeah you kept it a secret for this one yeah which is good so I was listening to a podcast. Uh, I don't remember the guy's name, <clears throat> um, but he was talking about how 
like you can see these athletes that are very strong to the point where training strength will not improve your sprint performance or jump performance. Um, and with those athletes, I mean, he's in favor of strength training and ideally you're doing strength training all year round and you're doing speed and jump performance training all year round as well. Um, but if you get to that point, then he's like, well, we just, we're just not going to do strength work then and like completely out of the weight room for the most part and just doing sprint stuff, just doing jump stuff and focusing on becoming more elastic. Like we're talking about. Um, but with those athletes, he'll have something that is on the slower end. Um, he's talked about using like, like a max effort clean or, like a max effort broad jump or like a standing vertical jump or something, which is not plyos as how we're defining them, but um, still a jump and something that gives you an indication of where your rate of force development is at. Um, and when you see those things start to decline, then you know that you're losing strength that is valuable. But if those things are like staying the same or getting better, then you know that you have enough strength to continue improving the speed and like the higher end stuff that you want to be improving, which I thought was a really interesting idea just to have that like one or two markers that is still beneficial to this stuff, probably lesser degree, but it also gives you an indication of everything kind of underneath that in the hierarchy. Yeah. I like that idea. That's interesting because you're right. Something like a broad jump or a vertical jump blurs the line. Mm -hmm. there's a strength component because you have a relatively long period of time to apply force and you're starting from a standstill. You have to overcome, you know, getting your body moving from zero to some sort of speed, but you also need to move explosively through that range of motion that you're, you're going through in order to project yourself or toss yourself as far forward or as high up as possible. So it really does, blur the line between the two, which I think like you've mentioned does a nice job of indicating, do you still have enough strength? Because there is a prerequisite level of strength that you'll need for that movement. And like you said, if you start to see it declining probably indicates that you haven't either done enough strength work or you're now not doing enough strength work to, to keep yourself where you're at. So that's, that's an interesting idea though. I do like that because a lot of those two foot maximal jumps, like I said, they, they blur the line. You need both. Yeah. Yeah. Which I, I think I, I'm, that's why I thought it was really interesting too. Like anything that's not reactive in nature. Um, he even classified like a, uh, like a continuous broad jump kind of thing as being more strength-based, which it is certainly more strength-based than, um, like a depth jump or sprinting, of course, but um, you can still use, like if you're good at the elastic components, you can still use that. So I, I think it should be like a, a standing broad or a standing vert or even like a squat jump or something like that. Um, depends how, like if you had, um, I mean, if you were talking about a high jumper, then you maybe would want to go with like a, a counter movement jump of some kind. And if you're talking about like a running back or a linebacker or something, maybe you'd want to go with a squat jump or a clean. That's even more to that strength side um, for your marker. But it's uh, I, yeah, I thought it, it makes sense. Um, Cause if I know like maintaining strength is important, um, but if you can do something that's more explosive, that will still help you maintain strength to some degree, or at least the strength that's important. Um then I think that might be a better use of your time. And uh, you know, and then you're not spending as much time in the weight room and you can use that energy and time to go towards things that might be more important. Yeah, no, like the, I do like that idea. It's an interesting, an interesting marker to throw in. And for the most part, I mean, I say it's an interesting marker to throw in. I mean, a lot of people are probably doing some form of a, counter movement, jump, squat, jump, broad jump in training anyway. So you almost don't even need to add something to what you're, you're doing. You just need to maybe pay closer attention to 
how it's changing over the course of training or, or anything like that. But I really do like that. Like, I, I like that idea mm-hmm. a lot. Yeah. And he was saying too, like, if you stop doing weight room stuff and stop sprinting and all you do is this like one counter movement jump every week, then like you're going to get weaker for sure. But if you're still like, if you're not in the weight room, but you're still doing your jumps and your sprints and all that stuff, then like you're like, you are using strength doing those things too, you know, and you're not going to maintain a hundred percent probably, but when you come back in the weight room after like whenever that marker declines, maybe you're at like 90% or 92% of where you were, which is still good. And then in a couple of weeks you can be back at that 95, 98, you know, I mean, that sort of leads into like the idea I had around maybe what I would do differently moving forward with some of the plyometric training. And it's sort of along the same lines of, well, yeah, we need to spend more time being elastic and explosive and things like that, but we also need to maintain our strength. And I think that's where like maximal isometric work or the overcoming isometrics could be a really, really interesting place to go during competitive seasons or times in training where we, we need to focus on a lot of elastic or reactive strength. And I think it's sort of true to what you just brought up. How do we maintain our strength? Cause we need a, a baseline level of it in order to perform a lot of the movements that we, we do. But then also, as we've explored some of this plyometric stuff, it's way more about the tendons and the elasticity that we produce in these movements than it is about concentric muscle force. So when we think about strength training, we think about maximal loading, or we think about concentric work where what are we doing on the way up or like the, what are we doing in the parts where we fight gravity? So it could be pulling ourselves up to a bar, could be squatting a a load up toward the ceiling. What are we doing in that like active concentric part of the movement is often what we associate with strength. But, you know, you talked about earlier, the limited range of motion that the ankle goes through when we get on and off the ground. So it's really important that like the hamstring and gastroc, for example, are acting isometrically you're trying to limit as much change in length as possible. So the, the tendons can do the work. So started to think about, okay, is there maybe more importance on doing like high intensity isometric or overcoming isometric type work during these periods of time, because a, it'll help us maintain the strength we would have built up beforehand but then B it's more targeted to the way the muscle is going to have to produce this high level of force during these movements via resisting length change rather than producing force concentrically. And Mm. I'd be curious to see, like I said, I've played around in the past with bar speed and then how fast you're sprinting or your jumping ability and things like that. I'd be more curious now to go back and do stuff like that again. But instead of measuring bar speed on the movements, measuring the, the output on an isometric movement. And as you see the ability to produce more force isometrically, do you see improved return on speed, change of direction, reactive jumping ability, things like that, because the muscle is more prepared to work in the way it needs to for those other Mm -hmm. movements. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting idea. Um, I do think it makes sense. And I think it's potentially, I don't know, like, I don't fully understand it, but I've heard of, um, well, like my, my Cairo, he works with baseball players and he, I think he was a pitcher and I think predominantly works with pitchers. Um, and a lot of the, or maybe all of the max strength work, I'm sure he does other strength work, but I think the predominant amount of max strength work he does with them is isometric in nature where it's like, at least the last time we talked about it was just like you unrack a bar that's more than you can squat, but you just stand there and hold it. Um, And, or you unrack a bar bench press and you just 
hold it and it he was using it more for the neural drive aspect of it and just getting the other ends of the curve um but uh i think from that perspective it makes sense and and that way you're not moving slowly and so you're not taking away from like the speed gains that you're trying to get um like on the track and stuff like that so i I think from that perspective it makes sense um and the way that we're talking about these things with loading the tendons and not the muscles at least in terms of concentrically it's definitely not the way up that matters like it's the way down and the amortization or or isometric phase that matters more so i think it would make sense to emphasize both of those probably um in the in the weight room and as you were explaining that i feel like i've heard cal deets talk about doing fast eccentrics into an isometric yeah that's Um, part of his triphasic there's a a a phase or a point in time within his overall training where yeah it's like a fast drop and catch basically yeah so i think something like that might make a lot of sense to do where like you yeah you drop quickly with a heavy weight into like a half squat and just catch and hold it for i don't know a few seconds but i think something like that might make a lot of sense to to yeah practice the the muscles like contracting to resist lengthening after like a very forceful eccentric um something like that yeah because i mean the more resistant in a type of activity like that the muscle is the changing length means the more the tendon can be used and it's not that the the muscle doesn't produce like we talked earlier on the episodes about the the voluntary and the involuntary force but like i said what were the exact numbers here it was like a 72 28 split i think that they had found in some of that work in terms of the the force production following like you said that like landing on the ground way more of it came from the tendon than the muscle or way more of it came from the involuntary action rather than the the effortful like you thinking about i'm going to push myself in this direction so that just made me think that you know what if you were in a competitive phase you're not going to really lose that much max strength if you did maximal isometric work for four or five weeks, but you might really help yourself in terms of the involuntary part of it. Cause you're training the muscle in a more targeted way, how it's actually going to function. So, and I've never really played around with, with that. I've done some like limited range of motion things during a competitive season, but never like zero range of motion, just press against an immovable object and, try to move it. I've never done that before. So I'd be curious to implement that instead of this limited range of motion work, which track and field will traditionally do at the, the most competitive times of the season. I'd be curious to try this instead. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that's a cool idea. And it, it makes sense to, to go after that and to try to, I was going to mention this earlier, but I forgot the imp- to get the tendon to do more work is useful because well, a, like if, if your muscle can also do work, then that's just more work overall that can be done. Um, but B with, especially with, uh, team sports, you know, if you can get the tendons doing more work, then that's less metabolic demand on the athlete for the same output. Cause the tendon work, like the tendons don't need oxygen to contract. It's like free energy. Yeah, exactly. So it's essentially like fake conditioning or more exciting conditioning in a way. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, that makes sense. Uh, Question on that. Do you think, I guess if I imagine setting up with a bar on my back, pressing up into pins that are movable, movable object, I imagine that as like a concentric isometric and I'm wondering, do you think that would have a different impact versus loading up something that's, and maybe, 
like if you have an eccentric component and then an isometric, that's obviously going to be a different stimulus. But if you had like some way to load up something that's heavier than you can lift and just resist lowering it, do you think that would have a different impact? So it's more of like a, an eccentric isometric. I think that would be ideal. Yeah. I just don't know how you do that. That's the difficult part yeah. around that. Um, I mean, even someone like if you took someone like Franz Bosch, he would probably disagree with this idea anyway, because he'll talk about like all oh, the load going through the Achilles or the, like the Achilles tendon on like a triple jumper is like 10 times their body weight. And then it's like, how are you going to find 10 times your body weight in the weight room? Like y- yeah. y- you can't. So th- I-, I do agree with you that if there was a way that you could, yeah, try to resist, like you set up with the bar on your back and you, you're on like the edge of a box or whatever, and you have your, your foot set up in the way you were going to strike the ground. And then you just drop a bunch of weight on somebody and have them hold that position for four or five seconds would probably be the, the most specific way or the, the best way to get this done. But I don't know if that's feasible. Yeah, that's very reasonable. That's very reasonable. The, that's the tricky part. So I wonder if just the straight overcoming isometric is maybe the, the best way we could feasibly accomplish that. Because I don't know if the other ways are possible the only thing i wouldn't be sure of is there's those squat racks where you can um like move and lock the safeties in place mm-hmm. right like the ones yep. where you could have the bar on your back you could load up you could jump and then once you've done finished your jump the weight stays up and then you just land with your body weight mm-hmm. there might be a way to do something like that where you could set up with the bar and then unload the safeties and then the weight would be pressing on you'd have tension and then you could just lock it right back up once you were done mm-hmm. but, but I, i've never seen one of those in person and never used one so i don't exactly know how they would function mm-hmm. yeah i mean it just and the idea of just putting somebody unloaded like to have someone go from unloaded to all of a sudden you have 300 pounds on your back is scary yeah, I, I you'd have to. I practice mean, it's what that. happens in a lot of these jumping movements. Well, I guess the, you're unloaded, you're in the air, and then boom, you hit the ground. But it's, I guess, the difference is like that load is going through the foot yeah, and then dissipating of, up the chain versus like your. I think your Achilles tendon is much more equipped to handle that than your discs. <laughs> well, you <know>? Yeah. <laughs> And regardless, let's say there was even a way that we could do something like that, whether it was, like you said, an isometric, and then all of a sudden the weight disappears and then you explode up Mm -hmm. or there's no weight. And then you have to resist the change. I still might start with just basic overcoming isometrics before you moved into. Yeah, this can't be almost an even more like that's like another step beyond that. Yeah, you got to start at the basics for sure. So, but that would be my thought is I've never really played around with a lot of that true overcoming max isometric work in conjunction with reactive or plyometric training. And I think it would pair nicely together rather than like leaving reps in the tank, maximal strength work or like limited range of motion strength work yeah yeah but i've never done it again it's just a thought it's like something i'd have to well there's there's play around with rationale anyway so it's i think it's worth playing around with and that's why i'm going to build that iso platform because there's only one way to do it i got to do it myself first there you go um did you have any yeah that's right did you have any other like ideas or or thoughts that uh, we haven't gotten to yet no, that was my big thought or my big idea um, around maybe, yeah, how to work some of that max isometric work into it. I already do a lot of submax mm-hmm. iso work, like you talked about, like trying to hold a position, um, mm-hmm. but it's obviously not maximal work. It goes on the lower intensity days, like, you know, yeah, standing up on your tippy toes or something for 
45 seconds or, mm-hmm. you know, things like that. So already doing enough probably on the, the sub max side, it was, could I find a way to implement a little bit more on like the, the max side and really get people like working mm-hmm. against an immovable object, mm-hmm. but yep. I've never tried it. So that's why if I do it, I would measure it in some way and, you know, measure the output on the, the max isometric. And then you have that number to compare to whatever jumping you're doing or sprinting or things like that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and see if it helps. Maybe it doesn't. And then, well, then, you know, then, you know, not to waste your time with that. Yeah. Um, I did have one other question. This might be, this might be quick. Um, Well, it's gotta be quick. We're almost, (laughs) almost out of time here, but um, how much do you think the foot mechanics in these plyometrics matter? Um, because, or I guess how specific do they need to be to the kind of jumps you're training for? Um, because like the tendon stretch of the ankle in a sprint looks different than in an approach jump for basketball or volleyball. Um, <clears throat> and like, I don't know basketball players as well. I imagine some of them would approach more similar to a high jump approach. And some of them would approach more similar to a volleyball approach. Um, but like, if you don't have that, like load the midfoot or forefoot and spring action, if it's more of like a, a heel rotate to the toe kind of an action. Um, do you think like training the springy elements matters as much, or would you train them in a different way? Or would you try to do more jumps like a continuous broad jump loads more heel to toe um, versus like a continuous vertical jump loads more midfoot? I, th- I think it does matter um, from a, not so much from a reactive or a, like a, a physiological or a muscle tendon tissue architecture perspective but i think from a coordination standpoint Mm -hmm. it really does matter and the reason i say that is because if i think about the hopping or like the small amount of jumping drills you see sprinters do versus you look across the track and see what the triple jumpers and the horizontal jumpers are doing it's a little bit different Mm -hmm. because a sprinter like you said touches down the ground midfoot and then boom has to get back up as we're a long or a triple jumper does a little bit more of that landing with the heel or completely flat footed. And then I want to say like rolls through the jump. Like at some point you'll see the foot plant flat and then the shin is angled backwards and it rotates forward as the foot remains planted. And then they take off is where you would never Mm -hmm. see a sprinter at high speed strike with the heel first. No, roll through the foot. You're kind of slowing yourself at that point because you're slowing yourself down. But with the jumps, you want to have a fraction more time to apply force because there's no time constraints. It's about jumping as far as you can. Well, yeah. And if you got all this momentum going this way and you need to go a little bit that way, then you kind of got to. And then you even it out a little bit. Blend it a little bit more in the middle between, like with hurdlers. Mm. Because they need the sprint speed, but they also, if you look at the way they take off prior to the hurdle, there's some similarities to long jump as well. So I, to answer your question, in my opinion, I think, yes, it does matter. Probably what you're doing in the weight room and other things is going to be all quite similar because it's all very elastic, but Mm -hmm. I think you're, you'd be correct in saying that you would have to account for how the foot is striking the ground. Mm -hmm. It's coordinatively different. People are going to figure it out in a different way based Mm -hmm. on what the, the mechanic is if it's more running or jumping. So I, I do think the foot, mm-hmm. the foot matters. So from a cord, from a coordination standpoint, I would consider it. There are jump drills that I see long jumpers and triple jumpers doing that. I wouldn't necessarily do with a pure sprinter because mm-hmm. I That's wouldn't want them to contact the ground that way. Yeah. But some jumpers are sprinters as well. So then when you're going mm-hmm. to do jumps, do that stuff. When you're going to do sprints, do this other stuff. But I do think it matters. Yeah. The foot contact is so different. Yeah. That makes sense. That's good to know. I didn't realize that uh, for like triple jump and high air and long jump, sorry, that the foot contact was 
like that far removed. I, I knew it would have been like more on that side, but I thought it was still pretty close to like that, that midfoot, but I guess not. Yeah. You'll see, like I said, there's, there's a doc. I can share something with you. Um, but you can see how the person, as they take off the board, they pivot almost around the ankle. So their whole body is back. Mm-hmm. And then the foot stays on the ground and they just completely pivot forward and then take mm-hmm. off. Whereas you would never, like I said, you would never see a sprinter or somebody sprinting, leaning back and then contacting the ground and then rolling forward. Again, I'm exaggerating all this, but when you look at it in still shots, you can see mm-hmm. like shot by shot, you're like, oh yeah, they're it's way yeah. different than the way that they're contacting the ground on the runway as they pick mm-hmm. up speed. Mm-hmm. They do it yeah. completely different. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. That's, I guess that would be pretty similar to, or not, it wouldn't be as extreme, but similar to like the javelin throw approach I've heard is similar to that, where you like have the, like the very severe, uh, like angle back, like as you're slowing yourself and you kind of push up more than you, you got to yeah, stop you, yourself. Right. If you see a still shot of like a person just before they're about to hit the ground to throw the jab, like they are their one hand with the jab is super far back their back is like arched backwards and the other, the opposite leg is like extended straight forward and the heel is about to touch down on the ground. And it's a violent Mm -hmm. like thud and impact with the ground. And then everything just goes into the jab Mm -hmm. and it takes off. So yeah, some of the still shots from that stuff is wild. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. I'll have to, I'll have to see if I can find some comparisons of like, yeah, like long jump or triple jump for you. Okay. I can yeah. send it to you to nice. at least start your search. So you don't have to. Yeah. I look, I look forward to that. Scour the internet. Yeah. Um, nice. Yeah. Looking forward to that then. Um, another thing that we tend to scour the internet for from time to time is music selections. Oh, always. Um, so this was a quick turnaround between recordings or at least quicker than we've been used to of late. So what uh, I have no doubt that you've been listening to a lot of different things in that time. Well, my lifting has changed starting this week. So I'm in another one of those intermittent hypertrophy phases. Oh, right on. So a lot heavier. So I've mm. been, I had a lot more heavy metal playing this week. So I went to, uh, I went to Deutschland to find my, my metal music for this week. Mm-hmm. So some of the old school, like German thrash metal bands, mm-hmm. like Sodom, uh, Creator, tankered some of the the like metallica slayer megadeth equivalents of germany instead of the nice. states nice so it's fast it's heavy um do you like rammstein that's the only like german metal band that i know yo rammstein's so good yeah okay They're industrial <laughs> metal but i like their stuff okay and i like that they sing in all german well, like there's something german. Most almost ninety nine percent of it is. Oh yeah, okay. A lot of it is, but there's there's some there's some English mixed into it as well. At least the songs, maybe only one song that I heard. <laughs> but yeah, I do like Ramstein. Nice, that's cool. I do. That's cool. Um, I, I feel like the little... quick turnaround probably hit you harder in terms of were you listening to something different or not. Well, I, I intentionally listened to something different while I made breakfast this morning. So I had something to talk about. <laughs> uh, I, I put on the, uh, the two thousands, uh, hip hop R and B playlist on Spotify. Um, and then a song that I had never heard by Kanye West came on and then I was like, Oh yeah, I do like Kanye West. So then I, I listened to a little bit more of his stuff. I don't like all of it. I definitely don't like all of it. So I skip a bunch, but he's got some, some bangers for sure. So. so yeah, you were hanging out with 2000s hip hop as you were making breakfast this morning. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So that's, that's where I was. Good stuff. But I, I plan to explore that a little bit more. Uh, I appreciate I, the level of dedication though, that you were like, this is a quick turnaround. I'm going to make a point of listening or trying to listen to something different. Well, I usually, I always do. I always do. Like if I'm like working out or driving or yeah, making food or whatever, then I, when I have the opportunities and there's not like a podcast that I really want to listen to, then like I, I make a point of it, but it's whether or not I find something that I'm interested in listening to is, is the, 
the trick because sometimes like the stuff that I want to try and listen to them like that, it's not what I'm looking for right now, you know? So I mean, I, I bet the audience appreciates it. Mm. Well, that's good. Cause now you get more variety out of us. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So more uh, hip hop R and B type stuff to come probably. We'll see how, where that goes. But anyway, yeah, that was a good one. Nice uh, conclusion to the plyo series. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. This won't be the last time we talk about plyos because they Probably come not. up in most most uh, podcasts anyway, I think. But um, And we have some experimenting to do now. We have yeah, new stuff right. to find. That's right. So, so gives us somewhere to go. Yeah. Learn a little right. bit, review some things. Gives us somewhere to go moving forward and mm-hmm. allows us. To, we've just created more questions we have to answer. So that just yeah. means we've created more potential episodes down the road. That's right. Works. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so if anybody has anything that they want us to look into and, and maybe do one of these series on or like a quick episode, whatever, let us know on Instagram, speed strength show, speed strength performance or Braden Southern. Um, yeah. And until then that was the speed strength show. Thanks for coming along world. We'll see you next time. Peace.